Let's pray, and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, as we look now at your word and think about you and your character, please give us humility, please give us wisdom, please help us to respond rightly to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a confession to make. I've always found the book of Joshua pretty hard to stomach. I find it a difficult book to like. Why? Because it is so violent. God commands Israel to go into the promised land and they have to wage war against the people who are there. They have to launch unprovoked attacks against the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations larger than they are. And God tells Israel to destroy them totally, to to show them no mercy, to make no treaty with them. And that's what we've seen so far in our studies in the book of Joshua. Three weeks ago, we saw them kill everyone in Jericho, from the, the toughest warrior through to helpless newborn babes. Men, women and children all slaughtered. Two weeks ago, it was the same with the city of Ai. 12,000 men, women and children murdered. There's no nice way of putting it. God has ordered seven genocides here. This is ethnic cleansing on a massive scale. Richard Dawkins comments on the book of Joshua this way. The ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the Promised Land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. He's got a point, hasn't he? This is tough stuff to take. So how do you feel about it? How do you feel about a God who orders seven genocides? I think if you're just okay with it and it's sort of washing off you, you're not listening to the book of Joshua. How do you feel about a God who orders seven genocides? Does it make you doubt his goodness? His justice? Does it make you doubt his very existence? How can I believe in a God who's like that? Does it make you want to shake your fist at him? Well, as we come into Joshua chapter 9, we meet the kings who are ruling in the promised land. The kings whom God has commanded Israel to destroy. And we see here in chapter 9 that they are not at all excited about God or his commands. They find it offensive. They find it disgusting. It makes them want to shake their fists against God. And so they gather together, they gather together, and they plan an all-out war 
on God and his people. Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1, have a look with me. Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan, remember the west of the Jordan is where the promised land is, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Great Sea as far as Lebanon, so this is everybody, basically this is the, all the people in the promised land, uh, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. The vast majority of the people in the promised land decide that they will fight. They hate God and they are preparing to make war against him and his people. But there's one group of people who don't join in with this plan. They know that God has commanded Israel to destroy them. They believe that with God's help, Israel will succeed in destroying them. Uh, These people, they're called Gibeonites, they don't think they can win. The Gibeonites don't want to fight a battle that they can't win. They want to save themselves. And so they invent a ruse. Now, a ruse is not just a selective school in Carlingford that every Chinese and Korean parent wants to send their child to. Uh, a, A ruse... A ruse is a trick. It's a trick. So they send a delegation to Israel. Uh, They pretend to be from far away when in fact they live close by. And they ask Israel to make a treaty with them. Verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. See the trick? They're pretending to be from far away, but in fact they live close. The men of Israel are suspicious, but a few well-placed lies and all the old mouldy stuff fools them and notice as it comes that Israel don't seek God's guidance on this so they make a treaty and they bind themselves with an oath verse 7 the men of Israel said to the Hivites that's the people of Gibeon but perhaps you live near us how then can we make a treaty with you we are your servants they said to Joshua but Joshua asked who are you and where do you come from they answered Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Now, the Israelites soon discover that they've been tricked. These people, in fact, live close by. The Israelites are not happy about it, but it's too late. 
They've bound themselves with an oath and they believe an oath is an oath, even if they were tricked into giving it. And so they don't attack or harm the people of Gibeon, verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we'll do to them. We'll let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leaders promised to them was kept. Joshua then has a meeting with the Gibeonites. He asks why they lied. They tell them, they tell him, it's because God commanded you to kill us. We weren't particularly fond of that idea, so we used this ruse to, to save our lives. And so Joshua does save them. He's not happy about them. It's not what God commanded him to do. Joshua says the people of Gibeon are cursed. They have to become servants for the community and and God's tabernacle. But, well, better to be a living servant than a dead free person. At least they're alive. Verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You're now under a curse. You'll never cease to live as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Okay. Can you see what's here then in uh, Joshua chapter 9? It's a contrast, isn't it? Contrast between the kings of the promised land in those first couple of verses, those kings who gather together to make war against Israel. Contrast between them and the Gideonites who do everything they can to make peace with Israel, who tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. You know, it's interesting, next week we're going to see a whole heap of the battles that Israel entered into, and then in chapter 11, the author of Joshua summarises the battles up to that point. Just come with me to Joshua chapter 11 and verse 18. Joshua chapter 11 and verse 18. Because here, uh, the author of the book of Joshua, he summarises all the battles, and he talks about how it was God who hardened the hearts of all those kings in the promised land so that they would fight against Israel, so that he could destroy them. But just notice from the summary that there's a bit of grudging admiration for the people of Gibeon. Uh, What they did here in chapter 9, it was the wise thing to do. It might have been morally questionable to lie and to trick people, but it was dead set smart. It was a smart thing to do, to make peace. Chapter 11 and verse 18. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
God's got it under control and there is that bit of grudging respect for a smart decision. On Fridays, uh, Friday's my day off, on Fridays I take, uh, often take my dog for a walk to the park. We have a, a smallish Jack Russell Terry, she's not tiny but she's not, not a big dog. She's just a lovely dog, good dog for our family. But our dog has no idea of her own size. Um, if she meets a small dog at the park, you know, a tiny little chihuahua or a rat or something some of these people seem to have in, in, in Chatswood, if she meets a small dog, the, the little dog will roll over and submit to her. But if my dog meets a big dog, she will do no such thing. She never rolls over, never surrenders. She will take on any dog. Doesn't matter if it's part dog, part bear. My dog will take him on. Doesn't matter how big, how strong, how fierce. And so I'm constantly having to rescue my stupid dog. I keep having to to save her from the jaws of massive animals at the park because she doesn't know when to surrender. The Gibeonites were wiser than my dog. They didn't try to fight against God and his people. They didn't try to fight a battle because they knew they couldn't win. They knew when to give up. Okay. All right, well, as I've been promising right through this series, today is the day we're going to think about uh, God in the book of Joshua. We're going to think about all this issue of all the wars that are here and God's justice. This is a very violent book, isn't it? We see it even here in chapter 9. Those Israelites were commanded to kill all of the Gibeonites. They only escaped by a ruse. Or you just see it in in that summary a second ago. God commanded them to destroy all of these people totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. God's command, kill them all, men, women and children, no mercy. What do we say? What do we say about this God who orders seven genocides? Well, in your outline there, you can see that uh, I have six points, six points that I want to share with you. Uh, The first point is this. We ourselves are not objective observers in this matter. We are, or at least those of us who are younger, we are a group of people who are quite unique in the world and in world history, incredibly rare in this world and over history. We are a people who have never experienced war. It's easy for us to feel all kind of soft and mushy and generous and kind about enemies because we've never had any. We've never experienced having our families or friends killed. We've never lived in fear for our own lives. We've never had all our stuff plundered and taken away. I remember a few years ago on long service leave, uh, we, we were living in Florence for a couple of months and I was talking there to a Nigerian man. He was one of very, very few people in Florence who told me he was a Christian. So we got talking He was telling me how a group of Muslims had attacked his family, uh, raped the women, tortured and murdered or else conscripted the men. He and his family alone had managed to escape to Italy. I said to him in my pious voice, well, it must be hard for you to love your enemies. He said, love them? You must be joking. He said, vengeance is mine says the Lord. He says, haven't you read the Psalms? God will vindicate us. God will destroy our enemies and we will say praise the Lord and laugh and rejoice to finally receive the justice that we have longed for. Now I'm not sure I fully agree with him 
I still think Jesus' command to love our enemies is relevant to the discussion, but it made me realise I haven't got the faintest idea what I'm talking about. I've got no passion about God judging his enemies. I've got no passion about God bringing the wicked to an end because I have lived an easy, peaceful, pampered, prosperous life. I think that's why I don't get the book of Joshua. I think it's why I find God's judgment of his enemies so hard to take. I don't know what it is to have an enemy. Part of a generation who doesn't know war. Uh, point number two. Point number two. We need to realise that according to the Bible, every single person stands under a death sentence before God. The Bible says all have sinned, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death. When I get upset about God killing the people in the promised land, I show my utter failure to understand even the basics of the Bible message. Since Adam and Eve, we humans have rejected God. We are born rebels against his rightful rule. We are enemies of the God who made us. That includes all the people in the promised land, but it also includes Israel, and it also includes you, and it also includes me. Every single person deserves to die. Every single person will die. That's the starting point. So the biblical response to this book of Joshua is not to feel surprised that God would order the death penalty for people in the promised land. The the biblical response is to be amazed that God would find some way to rescue a people and make them his people in the promised land and bless them. Israel don't deserve to have a relationship with God. They don't deserve to have a place in the promised land. And so they receive these things purely by free grace. And so the surprising thing is not the death penalty. The surprising thing is that anybody gets saved. Third point, third point is related. And that's to say that the people who were in the promised land, they really were, they were rotters. Their idea of religion was to sacrifice children and, and have orgies. They were cruel, evil people. And it's not like God was quick or rash to judge them. On your outline there, you can see a passage from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, God is speaking to Abraham, and this is, this is about 600 years before the events of Joshua chapter 9. Uh, so, so God is saying to Abraham, your family are going to be ages and ages in Egypt. It'll be a long time before you get to inherit the promised land. And look at what he says about the inhabitants there in your outline. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Notice this. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God wasn't being hasty about his judgment. He wasn't being arbitrary or rash. He didn't just have a tantrum and decide to kill everyone. No, no, no. These people of the promised land have been disgusting him, have been sinning before him for 600 years. He has waited patiently while they sinned and sinned and sinned day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century until their sin had finally reached its full measure until they richly, richly deserved to face their death penalty. Point number four. 
Point number four, the book of Joshua is part of the Old Testament. Israel are commanded here to, to kill people, to exercise God's judgment on the people of the promised land. That was God's clear will for them then. But we Christians are given no such commands. It is different for us. Jesus teaches us to love our human enemies. Uh, Jesus teaches us that the enemies we need to fight against are the spiritual enemies that would keep us out of heaven. We Christians, we fight our battle with the gospel, with, with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, not with a physical sword. There's a big difference between the Old Testament commands here and the commands that we are given in the New Testament. Although we need to be clear about this. God hasn't changed. It's not like God was a stern judge in the Old Testament, but now he's gone kind of soft. No, no, no. Just think about the cross for a moment. We're told that on the cross, Jesus bore the judgment of God that you and I deserved. And there's nothing, nothing soft about what Jesus went through. I mean, as Jesus was in that Garden of Gethsemane and looked forward to bearing the judgment that you deserve and I deserve, he didn't have a giggle. No, no, he, he sweated blood at the thought of facing the harsh, terrifying judgment of God. God remains a fearsome judge. You see it also if you think about the stuff that Jesus says about hell. or, or God's death penalty for all people still stands. And in the New Testament we find out it's even worse than that. In the New Testament we find out it's not just death from this life that we need to worry about. As Jesus said, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Rather be afraid of the one, capital O, the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Old and New Testaments are different. We are nowhere called on to fight holy wars. But don't be deceived by this. God's character as a fearsome judge is unchanged. Point number five. Point five, the God of Joshua is the God of Jesus. Now, Jesus acknowledged that the book of Joshua is God's word. He quotes from it, he alludes to it, he never apologises for it, he's not embarrassed about it. For me, that's got a couple of implications. First implication, because Jesus died and rose again, I'm inclined to believe what he says. I think that as a resurrected person, Jesus speaks with more authority than any ordinary person. And so if Jesus says that the God of Joshua is real, I believe him. If Jesus says that the God of Joshua is, is good and holy and just, I believe him. I mean, Richard Dawkins may tell me that the God of the Bible is not real. My heart may tell me that the God of the Bible is not real. Uh, Richard Dawkins might tell me that the God of the Bible is evil. My, my own heart might question and doubt God's goodness. But neither Richard Dawkins nor my heart has risen from the dead. Jesus, who rose from the dead, tells me that God is real and God is good. I find him more convincing. And the second implication the God that I know in Jesus is a good God. He's a God who's both holy and loving. He's the sort of God who insists on justice, who won't just let sin go unpassed, but at the same time loves his people with amazing, generous, sacrificial love. I know God's good character from the cross of Jesus. And so 
Even if I find things about the book of Joshua troubling or unsatisfying, I'm willing to reserve judgment. You know what it means to reserve judgment? It's like when a, a judge gets the evidence, but, but at the conclusion of the case, the judge isn't convinced that they know everything they need to know, and so they, they say, I'm going to reserve judgment, I'll hold off judgment until I've done some more thinking and research. I'm willing to reserve judgment. I'm willing to, to give God the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. I'm willing to wait till Jesus returns and I trust that then I will get it. Then I will understand that God has always been perfectly holy and perfectly loving. Once I see all the evidence, then I'll know that God has been good, not only in Jesus, but also in Joshua as well. Final point, point number six. You might not find these first five points satisfying. You might still be unhappy about what God does here in the book of Joshua. You might still be left with questions about God's love and his justice and, and even his existence. And I know that I still struggle. But friends, how we feel about God does not change whether he's real or not. Our subjective feelings about him have no relevance to his objective existence. As I say, I take it from the resurrected Jesus that the God of Joshua is real. And so the ultimate question we need to ask ourselves is not, do I like the God of the book of Joshua or can I justify his behaviour in my own mind or how am I feeling about it? The question we need to ask is, whose side am I on? How am I going to respond? How will I respond to this God who judges people? I remember a few years ago meeting with a non-Christian man. He wanted to meet up with me. He thought he had my number. He, he, uh, he, we met up and he showed me a, a passage in Leviticus where it sets the death penalty for all sorts of crimes, for adultery and incest and blasphemy and so on. And he said to me, Ha! How can you believe in a God who is so cruel? I said to him, you know what? That's nothing. Let me show you some stuff. Uh, I took him to Numbers chapter 30, where Moses gets angry with the Israelites. He says, where he says, why did you only kill the Midianite men? Why didn't you kill all the women and children as well? Uh, then we went to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God tells Israel to kill all the people in the promised land with no mercy. We jumped across to Psalm 139, where there's a blessing put on the person who smashes the heads of Babylonian babies on the rocks. From there we went into the New Testament. We looked at uh, how Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We went to Revelation chapter 19 where gentle Jesus, meek and mild, slaughters all his enemies with the sword from his mouth and feeds them to the birds. By this time the guy's eyes were like saucers in his head. He said to me, how do you feel about a God like this? I said this, I said... I, Look, I don't find this stuff easy to deal with. I've got concerns, I've got questions, but there is one thing that I know for sure. One thing I know for sure. If this is what the real God is like, I don't want to be on his wrong side. Did you see the point? It's the point of Joshua chapter 9 as well, isn't it? And that's why I've chosen this chapter as the one to talk about this, because this is where the rubber hits the road. We can be like the people in the promised land in Joshua 9. We can shake our fists and, and have our righteous rage against God who would have the audacity to judge us. We can make war. We can refuse to believe in him. We can do what we want. 
But all our ragings and refusals will make no difference to the reality of who God is. And the fact is this. If this is who the real God is and you fight against him, you will lose. You will lose badly. You will lose eternally. Friends, I'm with the people of Gibeon on this. I may not have all my questions answered. I may not be fully satisfied about God's actions here in Joshua or his actions in general with mankind. But I tell you what, unlike my dog, I know when to roll over. I know when to surrender. It would be stupid to think that I can beat God or fight against him. I don't want to be on his wrong side. So I'm going to ask for mercy. I'm going to plan for peace, not for war. I reckon it's the only wise thing to do, don't you? And so there's the application of Joshua chapter 9. Like Gibeon, we need to surrender. For us, we need to come to the God of Joshua through Jesus and seek his mercy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that you are a fearsome judge. We acknowledge that we, like all people, stand condemned as your enemies before you. We acknowledge your justice in judging sinners. And we thank you so much for the love that you have demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would please have mercy on us. Be at peace with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.